You're listening to the No Nonsense Amateur Radio Podcast, a conversation on where we are and where we're going in the world of amateur radio. Your hosts are Dan, KB6NU, and Tom, KB5RF. Okay, Dan, you ready? All right, I'm here with Dan, and guess who else? Scott, K0MD. Hello, everyone. Hey, Scott. <laughs> hey, Scott. Scott is the editor for the National Contest Journal. Scott, how long have you been editor? Oh, I've been editor uh, almost a year now. For those who may not know who you are, tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit of your radio experience and, and how that led you to contesting. That's an interesting story, so I hope your listeners don't fall asleep, you know. Anyway, I've, I've been a ham since uh, 1977. I grew up in southeastern Kentucky, so I'm one of the lucky hams who started life as a WD-4 call, and uh, those were great calls to have. In, in 1989, I moved to Minnesota. I finished medical school in 1989 from the University of Kentucky and moved to Rochester with my wife and uh, changed my call to a zero. And uh, I enjoyed field day as much as anyone as a young ham, and I enjoyed working DX. But no one told me in the first 30 years of my ham radio experience that I could have a field day-like experience almost any given week with a contest if I only knew about it, because I enjoyed working uh, high-speed sideband or high-speed CW in terms of high-rate uh, CW or, or sideband at field day, like a lot of people who end up in contesting. So field day is kind of the uh, entry gateway into contesting for a lot of us, and that's how I got started. I, uh, was, an, I was a part-time contester, uh, Tom and Dan, from... Mm -hmm. Oh, from my earliest days through 2006, uh, I have a neighbor, Kilo 4 India Uniform, Fred, who uh, was a colleague of mine at Mayo Clinic for many years, and we became friends and both hams, and he said, I think you'd like contesting. So in 2006, uh, I made my first serious entry into a contest by joining CQ Worldwide CW. And, uh, you know, after getting in the contest, I realized I wish I hadn't waited uh, 30 years to do it uh, <laughs> because it was so much fun. And, and I worked a lot of countries. And I think the first three or four years of contesting, I was very goal oriented. It was uh, how many more countries can I work? I want to get to DXCC. It didn't right. take long. Right. Then I wanted to get to five band DXCC and got that. And I'm still working on uh, uh, my 160 DXCC. I have uh, 80 through uh, 10 with the exception of 30. So I have seven band DXCC and contesting has been the most efficient way to do that for two reasons. One, uh, people are on and you can work a lot of people in 48 hours or less. And secondly, contesting requires you to keep a computer log and you upload your computer log. And I joined LOTW. I was not a computer logger until 2006 or seven. Uh -huh. And I learned how to do it then. And uh, I could never get the QSL cards processed. I mean, it's a lot of time to develop and process, you know, QSL cards, answer them, send off for them. It is. I sent, I sent the ARRL a note a couple of years ago when I hit uh, 40,000 or 50,000 uh, QSLs and said, uh, <laughs> do you realize how much money you've saved me on an average of uh, $2 per QSL, including postage and handling? Uh, you know, that, that's a tremendous amount of savings. And uh, uh, David Sumner was still CEO at the time and wrote back and said, well, you, we like your math, but we have to be honest that, you know, you might not QSL everyone on that list, but you're right. Logbook is 
created a lot of savings for you and everyone else, but thanks for letting us know. And we appreciate the positive response. <laughs> so anyway, I, I, the more I got into contesting, the more I liked it. I'm a competitive person by nature. I enjoy meeting people. Contesters have the same interest I do. Uh, and I like, I like HF stuff. I like uh, sideband and CW mainly. Uh, I enjoy building and putting up antennas, designing antennas. So um, contesters tend to have those same interests, and then I found about uh, found out about Contest University and started going to that. And the more deep deeply I got into contesting, the more I enjoyed it. So that's my story about, in a nutshell, uh, Tom, about how I got involved in contesting and why that consumes probably ninety percent of all my ham radio time now. Well, that's fascinating. I, I'm fairly new as a ham. I'm three years now, and um, uh, it sort of hit me. A similar thing hit me with regards to the. Uh, similarity in contesters in in the sort of the technical makeup and background and interest level and energy. Uh, I found the uh, Central Texas DX group. I, I, you had mentioned earlier you knew you know Jim George in three BB, and you probably know a bunch of other guys down here. Dan, I, I'm curious. So have you and Scott met in your your ham radio? Just on on the air and via Twitter. Ah, okay. All yeah, right. this is my this is my force, first voice contact with Dan. We've only been on CW with one another. <laughs> yeah, that's what I knew you were going to say. <laughs> we uh, we both uh, get on forty meters after uh, seven or eight p.m. Lo- our local time, and I'll run across him because sometimes he's the only signal I can I hear calling CQ, and it's always nice to talk to someone. Yeah, and I'm sure isn't Dan, that kind I'm sure, of amazing? It is. It is, and. Dan, I think you have better 30-meter propagation than me because I know I see you spotting and or talking on Twitter a lot about 30-meter DX contacts that I'm just not able to hear. So you must have a very good antenna and good copy and a good location. Well, I do pretty well on 30 meters. That's about all I can say with the, about that. So, Scott, I looked at you, Kira Z page, and, and you got quite a little setup there. How did that come about? Was that sort of a, since 2006, essentially, sort of slowly kind of added to it? or? Yeah, it, that's right. It's been uh, an incremental change. I've always been a Tower and Yagi ham. Even from my earliest days as a teenager, I uh, worked odd jobs to have enough money to buy a Tower and a Yagi and a Rotor uh, and, and uh, had one. Uh, my one of my regrets was when I was in medical school, my parents called to tell me they'd sold the tower and Yagi to another gentleman in, in the community. Didn't bother to ask me. And so I was without a tower and Yagi for a number of years. And then uh, after in about 95 or so, I was, I guess, from 80, 88, 85 to 95, I didn't have a ta- access to a tower and Yagi. And then in 95, I had another one. Uh, and then I've moved uh, several times since 95 in terms of homes in the community where I live. And each time I've uh, taken a sort of a Roan BX tower with me and uh, had at one time a 56-footer. I re- uh, the second time I put it up, I reduced it to 48 so that it would hold a larger antenna. Started uh, Tom with a Cushcraft X7 and a Yates rotor, which are uh, very good antennas and good starter antennas. And then uh, when I got into contesting, I started talking with uh, experienced hams uh, like uh, W0GJ Clan and John N0IJ and others, and uh, got, to, got to know Tom Schiller in Six Bravo Tango because I would call him and say, I'm thinking about buying an antenna. And uh, we had a number of conversations and uh, 
eventually uh, I sort of designed my current contest station around the Force 12 models that exist. And uh, most of the antennas you see on QRZ I purchased used because hams today are selling large Yagis and going to smaller things like steppers or smaller Yagis. And I've been able to uh, buy most of those antennas on the secondhand market, refurbish them, and then put them up. So uh, that, when I moved to the current location, I did not have the big tower. Uh, but because we got RF interference into the home, uh, I decided that uh, it would be best to move uh, move the antennas out to a field as, as part of our property. And once I had uh, permission uh, to do that, I got a permit from the local township government and started the tower at 100 feet. And then um, had uh, three of uh, the big monster tri-band antennas. They're called C49XRs. And uh, I had chatted with Craig Thompson, K9CT, and Craig challenged me. He said, really, if you're going to change anything in your station, you really want to have a dominating signal on 20 meters. He said, don't change anything unless you can really uh, improve your signal by 3 dB. So I did some modeling with HFTA, uh, the free software that comes with the ARRL antenna book, yeah. and uh, realized if I put all three of my C49XR Yagis up, I could uh, actually hit significant gains on 20, 15, and 10. So I uh, designed the height of the tower to uh, both fit on the property and also allow uh, optimal spacing of the three C49s. And uh, eventually I decided that I needed a second two-element 40-meter Yagi simply because I wanted to have the gain of a four-element but not the wind load or the weight. So that's where I am. And then like almost all DXers, I wanted to have something for the work band, so I have a 30-meter two-element Yagi on one of, on the same boom as one of the 40s, and then I converted an old Force 12 4BA antenna into uh, four elements on 17 and three on 12 with the help of Tom and 6BT. He's customized a lot of what I have, and uh, he, he will do that for hams. He's one of the few manufacturers. He and JK uh, will often customize antennas uh, and for you if you ask them at uh, really a minimal upcharge. Is it Force 12? Is that an antenna manufacturer? I'm not familiar with that. Yes, it says Tom started the company in the 1990s, uh, and he was the first to design Yagis with two features. One, no traps, so full-sized oh, elements. Wow. And secondly, yeah. an open-sleeve design, so a single coax could feed all three bands. Uh-huh. And he sold the company uh, with a health scare and then uh, eventually got the company back, and uh, then it well, didn't get it back, but he but he started his own company. He kept the patents on his antenna, so he's now n6bt.com. So he he still does the, most of the Force 12 work. JK Antennas eventually bought Force 12 from uh, two owners between Tom and now, and uh, they have the Force 12 line, but they do a limit offering. And Tom will Tom Tom has a limited offering compared to what he used to. He used to have maybe a hundred Yagi options you could buy. Now he's got probably thirty or forty, but he can design anything. Wow. And uh, he laughs. He says, "My computer is more. My computer is half full of designs you've proposed." Uh, <laughs> I jokingly say, "Well, I'm your your northern latitude test site." So, uh, well, so that's how we are. Are you uh, which sort of club or camp are you in? Elecraft, Icom, Flex Radio. I mean, given you're a contester and all, I'm just curious. I've owned I've owned almost everything. I've never had a Yesu, not because I didn't want to. I've had Kenwood gear in the past. Uh, I've had mainly Icom gear. Uh, I've started out with my first new radio that I bought was an Icom seven seven five. I've been very lucky. I bought my father bought a Heathkit HW one hundred one for me when I was a kid. After I made enough money to put the tower and Yagi up, I then bought a used Drake Beeline, kept those until I finished my medical training and gave the Beeline to a, another ham in town and bought an ICOM 775, kept that radio until the uh, Pro 2 line came out and I bought a used Pro 2 and then 
traded it off and bought a new Pro 3. And then when the 7600 came out, I traded that for 7600. In the interim, I bought a used 7800, so I had uh, two very modern radios. And then a couple of years ago, I sold the 7600 and traded it in for a used 7851. And then this spring, I bought a, a new 7610, and I, at Dayton, I bought a 7300. Ah. So so I have uh, my old 7800 and my 7851 and what I call an SO2R configuration for both radios are electronically connected to a computer program in one mm so that I can talk on two bands at one time, you know, separately. You can't transmit at the same time, but I can receive on two bands at once, and then I can transmit alternately. And that's a, that's a specific type of contesting strategy. And so I'm, I'm doing that. And then the 7610 I keep as a third position in the station. And that's usually the radio I talk to Dan on because uh, it's it's easy to turn it on and just uh, play with it. And then uh, the 7300 I keep for portable stuff. So, uh, you know, Tom, my contesting is not only at home, but I also travel. I try to go to the Caribbean to contest if I can once oh, a year. Nice. I take, yeah. take radios on work trips to South mm-hmm. America. I've operated from Chile. I was there in August operating. And so I, I like to have something small for that. Now, in the interim, I've had a K3S, uh, and I sold that in in the spring when I bought my 7610, largely because I assumed Ellicraft was coming out with an SDR at Dayton, and I wanted to sell the K3S while it was still worth something, but then Ellicraft did not come out no, with a, no. an SDR. Uh, so what camp am I in? I think, you know, radios are like cars. You have to find one that meets your need and one that's comfortable to use. So I don't think one size fits all. I don't think there is a single best receiver or transceiver. I think they all have strengths and weaknesses and uh, use what's fun to operate. That's my strategy. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, so I guess one last, but uh, Dan, you're, Dan, you're a, you have bought a, a new 7,300 not that long ago, right? Yeah. I'm, I bought it about a year ago and uh, that's my main radio here. Of all of my radios, my favorite one to operate CW is the 7610. It's better than the 7300. I know that's hard to imagine. And its audio peaking filters are something to dream about. So if you ever have the opportunity to trade it up, I strongly encourage you to do that, knowing how much you like CW. Huh. Well, a friend of mine just bought one, and I'm going to go over there and see it on Monday. So oh, I'll uh, that's I'll a mistake. Just see what I can do with it. I, uh, I met, uh, Elmer, I have here, Gene Hinkle, K5PA, uh, bought a 7610. He's up there in Leander, North Austin. And I went up and um, put the headphones on, and wow, it was really different. <laughs> it was very nice. You know, that's one of the things, like, that's just a separate show altogether. But uh, a single operator with two radios listening to CW on two, both sides, I, I, I'm just not quite sure I know how all that works yet, but I'm fascinated by it. Yeah, it's uh, Jim George, your neighbor in 3BB, does it extremely well. Uh, K5TR, who I think lives near you, also does it yes. well. Yes, oh yes. I, I'm a beginner with it compared to those guys. How, how did you stair-step yourself into that? I mean, you just sort of, it takes time, you practice a little bit kind of thing? Or? Yeah, yeah, it does. You know, I was doing SO2RDXing long before I tried it with contesting. You know, you'd be in a, oh, you'd be talking, you'd be in a CWQSO or a sideband QSO with someone, and you realize there's DX at another part of the same band. <laughs> so go. having a dual receiver radio, no, having a dual receiver radio, I would simply uh, turn on the second receiver and go down to the other frequency. And frequently, I could uh, work two DX stations at the same, you know, simultaneously without either one of them realizing I was transmitting while they were transmitting to me. I was transmitting off frequency to someone else. Oh, that's too cool. That's too yeah, cool. it's fun, and, and and I did that. So the reason I got into it in contesting is simple. 
I had reached an asymptote with my contest scoring. Mm-hmm. And at Contest University for a number of years, it's been said that if you need to take your contest scoring to another level, you've got to start doing SO2R. And if you find yourself checking email or reading stuff while you're contesting, then you're you're mentally ready to try SO2R. So I've done that. Dan, have you done that or tried that? Oh, no. No, 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 no. <laughs> Okay. I, I, I think I think I maybe I could if I practiced a little bit, but you could. Yeah, you're not, very good. Yeah, at the Northern California Contest Club has put out a video series on it. I watched that, and their lo- their their logo or motto is "If you can drive a car, you can do so 2 R." And what they mean by that is this. When you're driving a car, do you ever turn the radio on and adjust the sound or change the station? Or do you ever uh, turn on the headlights or turn on the windshield wipers? Yes, you do. Do you ever have a conversation with someone beside you while you're driving? Yes. If you can mentally process those two tasks, you know, you can do SO2R. You'll have to send me that link and we'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, absolutely. I'd like to see that. Well, that's fascinating. Then the last thing, you know, with related to all that is... Well, if you were to pick the two, what's your favorite favorite mode, CW or, or sideband or RIDI? You know, yeah, I know you do a little bit of that. I do a little RIDI. Uh, my favorite mode is CW. Yeah. I do 80% of my operating CW. It's much easier and, and more successful working DX and working other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and Begali is sort of your favorite key, I take it? Yeah, I, uh, I I love Begali's. Uh, one uh, one a friend in the in the hobby gave me a Begali several years ago as a thank you gift for uh, something I had done, and he was way too generous. But once I used the Begali, I started buying them, and uh, I'm very pleased with them. Uh, my, the sculpture is my favorite. It's the smoothest uh, key I've ever operated, uh, and uh, I, I'm really happy with it. Dan, I can't remember what you said you use. Oh yeah, I'm a Begali fanboy too. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll have to say, my Elmer lent me one of his, and uh, the gold one sitting over there, and uh, and uh, I do love it. So, well, um, all right. So, for the National Contesting Journal, you're the editor, and what was your inspiration to do that? You must be pretty busy. How do you find time to do that, and what was your inspiration for it? I think the past editor caught me at a weak moment. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, the, content, the NCJ was started in Minnesota in the 1970s by the late Todd Olson, K0TO. I got to know Todd in the late part of his life because Todd uh, would make trips to Rochester to be, to be seen as a patient at Mayo Clinic where I work, and we would frequently do lunch. And uh, Todd was at a phase in his life where he wanted to give back. He wanted to build things for hams. He had a website with all kinds of technical support documents and ideas. He would do mass orders of toroids and ferrites so uh, hams within our contest club could get a discount. He would teach people how to build uh, balance and things like that. Uh, and he was helping me solve a uh, technical issue I was having with contesting in the Caribbean and started telling me the story about NCJ and how he put it together in his dining room. His -hmm. children were called to help staple the pages and uh, ultimately he persuaded the ARRL to uh, take it over. Now, fast forward, we had nominated Todd a couple of rounds and he finally was admitted into the Contest Hall of Fame for this work. And he died within a few months of his induction. And uh, the current editor, uh, Pat Barkey, N9 Radio Victor, asked me if I would consider taking it over as the next editor as a tribute to Todd Olson in Minnesota for uh, his leadership. And I said, yes, certainly I'll do that. But I made sure it wouldn't be a big time commitment. And Pat is, of course, an economist and he's much more efficient than me. I probably spend 
twice as much time a month as he he's, he did because I'm less efficient. So it is a fair amount of work, but I've tried to follow in his model of having articles mainly about contest station building, but I've expanded it to try to focus on what I call next-gen contesters. I recruited a contributor, Neil Rapp from uh, Indiana, WB9 uh, VPG, who's has a high, who's a high school club mentor and a teacher, to write a monthly or a bi-monthly column for us on next gens, and we've actively looked to, f- to figure out how do we get new people into contesting, you know, how how can we get you and D- and Dan into contesting, and what is it that attracts young adults into contesting and youth, and uh, how how can we reinvigorate contesting because uh, the current crop of experienced contesters are exceedingly happy and satisfied with where contesting is, mm-hmm. but we're losing more. Con- contesters per year with deaths and we're gaining as new people coming in like DXing and like a lot of traditional ham radio. So, uh, you know, we have to, we have to figure this out or the hobby will sort of die off in a decade. Yeah. Well, we're actually going to get into that. Um, I just want to comment that, you know, as a fairly new ham, I, uh, in addition to subscribing to Dan's blog, which I had almost from the beginning, uh, subscribed to you know CQ magazine and QST. But then I ran across a copy of uh, the National Contesting Journal, and it was like, wow, it only comes out four times a year. But I got to tell you, of the three, when they're sitting around, that's the National Contesting Journal uh, issue. Every time is the one that sits around the longest. You know, I just go back and I reread and I reread, and I just don't tend to do that on the other ones as much. And I think that's because there's a section in there for beginners. There's a, you know, it's like I was afraid it was just all for a bunch of you know people who'd been doing it for 20 years. But it's it's a very much a focus on hey, if you want to get into it, here's how you can get in. Yeah, thank you, Tom. I'm glad you find it that way. That's that is the intent. I, I make sure we have an article for every. I say we have three groups of contesters. We have beginners, we have really seasoned and experienced contesters, and we have everyone in the middle. And we need to have something that touches each of those constituencies in contesting. So we intentionally try to do that. And I'm glad that you are yeah. finding that experience. And uh, it comes out six times a year. I wish we could publish it monthly. We have, more than a, That's right. we have more than enough content to do monthly, but we, do, we only have about 2,000 paid subscribers, which isn't very many. Mm-hmm. And so the, we can't afford to publish it more than uh, six times a year as a paper journal. One of my dreams really is to take NCJ into the digital realm, to have both a paper copy for U.S. hams, but also a digital copy for everyone. And so that the price of it, if you're in Germany or Japan or China, is no more than what the U.S. uh, community pays, and you have digital access. I also would like to see us have uh, all of the issues available digitally for subscribers to access, because there's a lot of good stuff in there that uh, I want to have to go back and read. And uh, the AWRL puts it out for donors on a CD-ROM every year, but we really need something for our our own subscribers. All of my medical journals are available digitally back until they they started. Why don't we do the same with uh, QST and NCJ? You know, so it's something you're looking into and keen on. It was a question I had. So, yeah, yeah, it is. It's something that I keep asking the league about. They would like to do it. It's just a matter of priorities and finances. Uh, It's rather expensive to take NCJ digital, according to uh, Steve Ford and the group at the league. And so I've uh, received uh, permission that we can have a discussion in 2019 about this. And my hope is to plan is to fly to Newington with the associate editor and have a day or two of meetings to talk with them about what we can do to, to, to bring this thing into the 21st century from a digital standpoint. 
Well, listen, putting on my ARRL credit card for a second, how, <laughs> how, ex, how expensive can it really be? You should be able to put this thing on a scanner and produce PDFs. But but the ARRL wants to control the, control the intellectual property and put it in the stupid digital formats. Yeah, I don't know. Rant off. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 Dan, you're exactly right. I don't think it's a control issue. I think that their vision of maybe digital is what we see with QST. Uh, I, I, and, and they've quoted a figure that's about 20000 a year in cost to do it digitally. Uh, I think there are ways that it could be done, uh, as you described, for much less than that. Yeah. And, you know, maybe, maybe this is a journal that we should, uh, after two years, just say anyone can have access because uh, yeah. it would only generate new subscribers. You know, any, anybody interested is going to pay for the current issues. They're not going to wait two years to see the content uh, and then get it as a freebie. But it, it really would help the hobby and help uh, – there's so much richness in it. Now, on the ncjweb.com, we have a feature article from every issue, and that's now up to date. So we can go back 10 years, you will see feature articles and bonus material. So anything that I think is relevant to that, that's relevant beyond a decade or that's relevant for a new contester, I ask uh, Kirk Pickering, K4RO, to put on the uh, NCJ web, and he does. And you can download that there free and make copies for anyone. Oh, oh that's good. Wow. Well, okay. This next topic kind of moves us into to some of the newer edge technologies, if you want to call it that, or new ways of operating. And I think it might dovetail pretty well with how do we get more, how do we get new people involved in contesting? Um, in particular, remote operations, you know, has really taken off. I, I, I know that in particular because I live in the middle of Austin. I have a small area for antenna. The antenna I have is incredibly noisy. And so um, Gene, K5PA, allows me to use his remote system up in Leander. And I put one up in my um, sister's house in Marquette, Michigan, which I'll use sometimes. Um, but, you know, do you, you know, uh, what, what, what do you see happening with all that as far as contesting is concerned? I think a remote operation is a trend that will only grow. Uh, we're getting more, more and more population, more and more urbanization. Antennas, per the laws, laws of physics, antennas really can't be reduced to, to too small of an entity and yeah. still work effectively. So I, I foresee going forward every decade more and more hands doing remote operations. Uh, if uh, if I could, I would put remote antennas somewhere in Maine just for 160 <laughs> operations and oh, contesting. So, so it could be uh, 2,000 miles closer to Europe and uh, for me. So I, I think contesting really does need to move into uh, allowing remote stations. Uh, there was a nice NCJ article a few years ago about uh, one of the very famous U.S. contesters operating remote from the Middle East. I think he was in uh, Dubai and did uh, sweepstakes remote. Uh, and that's kind of nice because if you think about it, he could operate during the day while it was night in the U.S. and really have an effective contest. I think contesting does need to move into the remote category. We need to recognize it as an yeah. entry category and, and allow them to compete for awards. I, I think it would only grow the contesting community. It would be no, nothing, you know, and you, you could separate the categories, you know, like we have assisted and unassisted. We have single kind operator and multi-operator. Yeah. We could have remote. Yeah, well, that makes exactly. sense because you, you face different constraints on the remote depending on your setup, which is part of the deal is how well you have it set up. But there's delays over the Internet, and I don't know, I've, I've certainly been a huge learning curve for me so you concur that somewhere along the line rules are going to potentially need to change you know for an increasing use of remote remote radio yeah 
Well, some, some contests already allow yes. it, and DXCC does allow it. And we now have a dedicated column in NCJ on remote contesting. Mark Aker, oh. K6UFO, has started. You will see the first edition in the next issue of NCJ soon. It's already in some homes. It will be in your mailbox soon. Mark Mark is a retired patent attorney from, from Apple, uh, so... He is a fantastic writer and communicator. He remotes from downtown San Francisco from the 80th floor of his penthouse to a station off the coast of Washington. He bought Ward Silver's old place and remotes into that. And uh, he, he is – Ed Munns recommended this at Visalia in April, and Mark readily accepted this task to do it. And uh, we were delayed a month or an issue getting his article started because of some technical issues. Uh, with the editorial process, and now that we are running, you're going to see a regular article from from Mark. He's already got, I think, five years of content ready. Well, how timely is that? And that, that must be how you knew Ward. You had recommended I speak to him about some other things that are related to contesting. So, yes, Ward Ward is one of the uh, first of all, he's one of the cream of the crop contesters in the United States. He's also a very prolific author. He, he's also a visionary thinker. He's a disruptive guy. He's really serious about promoting growth and new, new, uh, new, new people into the hobby. And uh, so I refer people to Ward because he does not slam doors on ideas. He develops them into ideas that can take off. And so he's, he's a real asset in ham radio. He helps us with NCJ. He helps us with contesting. He's, uh, he's just one of the people in this country who uh, does a lot. Well, I'm grateful for the introduction. He and I had an amazing talk about uh, – uh, sort of a new form of FT8 contesting. So while that we're on the topic of FT8, where are you around all of that? But I'd be curious if you wouldn't mind just your personal opinion. And then there's sort of the, well, looking into the future, where do you see all this going? Because you got to admit, um, WSJT is just, it's just, people are just climbing on left and right to, to utilize yeah, that. Yes, you're right. No, D- Joe Taylor and his team, uh, have uh, done an amazing job of developing a weak signal mode that uh, has transformed and has been disruptive. It's giving lots of people an opportunity to work distant stations in other countries that they would otherwise never have the chance exactly. to do. It allows individuals with wires and low-power stations, uh, you know, a 7300 and a dipole to, to work Bhutan, and I think that's pretty exciting. Uh, I haven't started FT8, not because I don't want to embrace it or time. have philosophical worries about it. It's time, and it's also understanding the computer interface. Sure, sure. Uh, and that's what's kept me out of it. I'm a proponent of getting FT8 into contesting. I have great respect for uh, W0YK Ed Munns, who uh, writes the digital contesting column for NCJ. Uh, Ed has said that we should remain open-minded about FTA contesting, and we should give it a try at some point. It just the technology needs to evolve, and the software needs to evolve so that it will fit what the contesting community wants. And so I think we're soon to see at least one, if not more, FTA-launched contests. I'm happy that the Ritty Roundup is starting with FT8 in uh, January because it will be a great entry way for testing it in a contest setting. And I think if people are just patient over the next couple of years, FT8 will emerge as a uh, con- as a mode of contesting. It will not replace sideband CW or Ritty, but it will be a fourth mode that people enjoy, and uh, it will have a large group of proponents. And that, that'll be exciting. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right about that. I uh, Do you... Do you- uh, I have another question related to that, but I'm actually going to pop back in time to just a, a, mo- a moment here. Is h- how do you see the trends in CW going? 
remains very popular. Uh, if we look at the recent uh, Ducey Island, the expedition, I think 60% of their contacts were CW. Wow. There's more interest in CW now than there was when it was a mandatory part of getting your radio license. So I, I think CW will remain a viable mode. People find it intriguing and interesting. Uh, and uh, since you don't have to do it, you want to do it. And I think Dan has been a big help for this. Oh, yeah. Dan and, and CW Ops, they, they both have work with different groups of people to promote learning and using CW. And Dan, I appreciate all of your work with that, with your no-nonsense uh, uh, publications and your podcasts that you do. Uh, you're a good proponent for that. So thanks for shouldering that and working at it when I think uh, you probably felt you were out in the wilderness, but now uh, people are, are really appreciative of what you've done. Well, thank you very much. But the, but you, as you probably know, and as we talked about a little bit earlier, the problem is getting people on the air. It is. Aside from contests. Yes. Yes. You know, there was an interesting session at Visalia. Uh, and, uh, Tom, you may have read about it at NCJ called Contesting 2.0. Yeah. And what, what emerged from that series of forums that, that Ward Silver organized were some really provocative ideas, one of which is this. Uh, one of the individuals speaking said that his son was a serious gamer and that what we need in ham radio is like what gamers do. And you, you can go to a lobby in, in the gaming uh, uh, vernacular, and you can find someone to play against at a moment's notice. People are hanging around just looking for someone else to play against because people like competition. Right. It doesn't have to be for hours and hours. If there's a weakness with contesting, it's that we run them for such a long time yeah. and that most people are turned off. I mean, uh, most serious contesters don't like 48-hour contests anymore. Uh <laughs> Many there's a lot of interest now in the short two-hour spreads and the two-hour events, CWT opens, as well as the six-hour QSO parties and the state QSO parties. So I think contesting will emerge, will evolve, and we will see lobbies emerge where you can just have a uh, contest. And, I, you know, Tom, your idea of having a contest, which we haven't talked about on the podcast, mm -hmm. but – if you don't mind, no. I think it's an idea yeah. where you have collaboration with uh, hams from around the world and you compete as a team right. will really take off and resonate. And uh, I think uh, that's what we need to do. We need to be flexible enough to recognize that we'll keep the big traditional ones, the CQ Worldwide, CQWPX, AWRLDX, AWRL, really round up the uh, uh, NAQPs and, and sweepstakes, of course, coming up. But we'll also sprinkle a little, some new activities and some new ideas in to see what will work. We shouldn't, we should cast a lot of ideas out and just see what sticks. Yeah. No, I'm, 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 I'm game there. I mean, kind of related to this is, uh, this follow-up sort of the final question was, um, because FT8 now has evolved the way it is and because it's fairly computer-driven in many ways, the ability to automate that or essentially create a robot for that, whether it's attended or unattended operation, um, is now possible. And there are people that are doing that. And I think that's just going to be another thing that's going to – I mean, that was pointed out to me by Gene, the ARRL Ready Roundup, January uh, 5th through 6th ruling specifically rules out the possibility of unattended and automated operations for FT8 entrance. Well, that was very interesting. So there'll be some pushback along the way, but it's inevitable. But the thing I had in mind was, you know, as you said, in the gaming world for the, for the kids that they, they play, they often play team games globally with one another. And I thought, well, that is just a perfect setup for doing 
teaming, for required teaming to be a part of the contest. Because if you think about it, if you do like a 24-hour thing around the world, the you'd be more likely to be successful if you knew someone in different countries as the, as the sun turned, essentially, as the propagation changed. And that might just prove to be a way for which you could use whatever automation you wanted, uh, but you had to have people there, let's say. But um, you could utilize people's skills for making the final decision on things and use the computer for what it's good at. And we'll follow up more about that later. I'm talking to Ward on the idea. So thanks for, for bringing that up. You're welcome. Well, I'm on the contest advisory committee, and I've taken your idea and pushed it into that forum, and there was a lot of enthusiasm for it. Uh, I've also uh, talked with uh, the uh, contest director at the ARRL, Bart Jonke, about uh, whether we should beta test, to use a term that I'm familiar with, beta test some FTA contest, uh, and uh, how we might go about doing that uh, so that we can just pilot these to yeah. see what will work. Yeah, there'll be you know, plenty of there'll think, be plenty of people that'll jump in and try it out. I'm sure. Yeah, and if we think about what makes ham radio relevant to life, right? I mean, this is a hobby and fun for all of us, but there ought to be some useful life skills we learn from this. Yes, uh, I think one yes. of those skills can be learning how to be a good team member yes. and do strategy with team members yes. around the world. Yes, that's well. I see it in the startup community, which is what I work in time and time again as a mentor and. You know, the kinds of problems that we're solving in the startup world, may it be AI or conversational interfaces or whatever, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of material science stuff. They're so complicated now. You have to work in teams. And seeing these people work in teams globally, it's like that's what's going on now. A tiny, tiny digression on this was when we were integrating the Internet into the enterprise at Motorola when I was there all through the 90s. You know, it was all, and, and then not long after that, the computer industry was trying to figure out what to do with the internet. And the big deal at the time was buy a faster computer, you could make more money on the internet. Put more memory in the computer, you could put more, you could do, you know, be more competitive on the internet. Well, you know what? That's all gone away. Everybody has a fast enough computer. Everyone has fast enough access, for the most part, to the internet. So the the, the playing field is level. You know, the everybody has the has the gear they need. So what really separates is 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 not just you and not just the machine, but how you team with the machine and how you team with other people. Because that's what we're doing in the real world now to solve problems. That's what you do, I would imagine, in the healthcare, is you've got some healthcare issues that require teams of people to solve. Is that right? Well, that's correct. Everything in healthcare works better in teams. That's been the strategy of the Mayo Clinic for 100 plus years. Yeah. Right? Team-based care and, and having a collaborative model where doctors can share a common medical record for your benefit as a patient. I think it's proven over and over that it works. And the same is true for research. Uh, I, when I participate in uh, research studies, they're all global teams now. Uh, no single country has all of the intellectual property or talent for any given idea. Uh, and uh, it, you know, it's a global world that we live in. It's, you know, Tom Friedman was right. The world is flat. And uh, we best recognize that. The other thing I want us to, to talk about, if we can, is we should not be afraid of automation, artificial intelligence, and bots. We, we need to think about how to use this in ham radio and in contesting to take it to the next level so that we can have fun. So here's an example that Joel Harrison, a former ARRL president and a very well-known six-meter avid DX con DXer and contester, talked about it, Contesting 2.0. He said, let's think about drones. He said, we embrace the idea that drones can deliver food and 
books from Amazon, and in some communities now, they actually will deliver a defibrillator to a spot within a shopping mall so someone can have a cardiac arrest wow. treated quicker than an ambulance can get there. Yeah. What about taking a transmitter that you can remotely connect to uh, from your laptop and then having the drone fly the transmitter and the small antenna up on top of another grid square close to where you are, <laughs> and then you can yeah. operate from two grid squares simultaneously or alternately, Far. right? <laughs> or what about this? What if driverless cars become a reality much quicker? Uh -huh. Can rovers, can instead of being a single rover, exactly. can you have six rovers that you manage? Your SO6R. <laughs> <laughs> That's, That's yeah, I thought about something like that, but that is that is certainly a, a possibility. Touche. <laughs> you guys need to come to Visalia and hear some of these very interesting ideas. I'm in, you know, man. Just tell me, and I will get on a plane to go there. This is my kind of my kind of topic and my kind of group. And this is this is well. Listen, uh, we should probably move toward wrapping up here, Dan. Um, what else would you like to ask at this point? Well, I want, I want to figure out how I can get a drone to deliver me a 76 pound. <laughs> I'm telling you, don't go over there. Don't go over there. See that? <laughs> uh, well, okay. Uh, uh, I, no, I, think, I think I would like to say one thing. Okay. So, so I'm not a really a big contester. Yeah, you know, I might play around in the sweepstakes mm -hmm. this weekend, and I, I play around with uh, uh, some state QSO parties and even got some certificates from – Difference, uh, you know, being the highest score in Michigan for a few uh, state QSO parties. But what what would you say to guys like me? I would say to guys like you and to you specifically, Dan, you are what you represent 80 percent of all contest activity. There are a limited yeah. number of stations who get on who know they can win and typically do. Right. Almost the same people win the contest every year. <laughs> I'm not one of them. I went from being like you to being on for a couple of hours, finding a few new countries, to now trying to stay on CQ Worldwide 30 to 36 hours and maybe make 2 million points instead of 1 million points. And uh, if, it, if we didn't have the casual operator, the casual contester, and what I would call the serious, con not the non-serious contester, the people who don't care about winning, but they do want to make some contacts and have some fun, and the thrill they get is from talking to people in 28 countries rather than uh, five, Th those are the people who make the contest fun and make them work. And if we don't help them to understand and realize that they are the secret sauce for the success, there won't be anyone else to work. Give you a good case example, or a good, good, good example. Uh, this past uh, CQ Worldwide sideband, just a week weekend ago, uh, I looked at the Minnesota Wireless Association reflector. I'm part of that, that group, right? A number of the really serious contesters, uh, including me, said, boy, this was a tough contest. One day the propagation was awful. The other day it was really good. And if you interviewed my wife, she would tell you, no, he didn't have fun in CQ Worldwide on Saturday. It was hard. He complained. But on Sunday, you know, I was going all day because I could work stations. The propagation was working. So so here, you know, I had really good success. Was my score what I set as a goal? No. Did I work as many contacts as I wanted? No. Was propagation really hard? Yes. Okay. So I, I had some joy and some, and some, some dissatisfaction. The, the best write-up I saw came from a ham who said, I had so much fun. I worked eight new countries on 20 and four new countries on 40. My 12 contacts were the best 12 contacts of the year. He actually enjoyed the contest more than most of us because his expectations were low and they were easily exceeded. 
And that's really what it's about. It's what what am I doing to enjoy this, to challenge my station, to learn about the science of propagation. It's not always about winning, right? I think there are many more benefits to contesting than winning. I think there are a lot of life lessons in contesting. There are missed opportunities during a 48-hour contest. If you miss them, you don't score well. I missed Friday I missed Friday night's openings on 80 and 40. Why? Because I had a really long and tiring two weeks of work, and I was so tired I couldn't stay up much past 11 p.m., so I fell asleep and slept all night. As that was what I needed. That was best for me and my health, but I missed an opportunity. So what's the lesson on that for me as I look forward in my own work and family lives. It's look for opportunities that will be missed if you don't take advantage when they show up. There are lots of little lessons for life about contesting. Winning is the icing on the cake. It's not the end all. It's what do you learn about life, how to be a better team player, how to be a better citizen and better communicator. The other thing that was fun, I'm going to Chile for work in a, in a few weeks. Uh, and I worked a station in the southern part of Chile, an area where I plan to visit. So I sent him an email after the queue. So I stopped running. Okay. And, uh, I sent him an email and said, hey, I'm going to come visit your community. You know, are there a group of people around who'd like to contest that we could maybe, you know, sit down and have a meal or have a drink or something? He wrote me back. He said, yeah, I'd love to see you. We'll get a group together. This is the sort of thing that, this is the sort of friendship basis that, you know, you get on the, from contesting it from the hobby. And I, and I, so I, so having said that, I think somehow, and I, and I don't, I don't know how, you know, maybe it's in the contest journal and it would be great to, to to get that up above 2000 circulation, but, but, you know, make more of that, you know, make, make more noise about that. I mean, I think, I think a lot of guys say, Oh, you know, even, even in state QSO parties, say, say there's a QSO party with a, with a, a serial number in the exchange, you know, you get on and you're, you're giving out 10 and 11 and 12. And these, these other guys are giving out 800 already, you know? <laughs> and so, you know, I mean, to, you know, that in a way that's, pretty uh, discouraging right it is i mean your ego takes a hit imagine being the editor of of the contest yeah. journal right and i get on and i'll say you're, you're, you're number four and i can hear them say number four really <laughs> their expectations of, of what i'm going to do in that contest have suddenly i'm not living up to their expectations so yeah i know you're right dan this is a question i want to ask you if tom if i might uh, I, I struggle with some of this. Some of what we want to communicate is best done through National Contest Journal. But I think some of the people that, that I would like to communicate a message like the one we've just discussed to are not reading NCJ. And I wonder if there aren't forums like QRZ where an article about the importance of being a casual contester might actually reach more people Absolutely. than say – what well, I, I tell you what, I, and I've, I've just done this. I've ex, I've extended invitations to anyone who wants to write about a particular aspect of ham radio to publish a guest post on my my blog. I mean, so I'm I'm extending that invitation to you. Thank you. Well, I'll try to put something together about casual contesting, but I think there are ways blogs, this podcast, uh, and and QRZ where many hams are getting information who may get CQ or QST, but they're missing it because all of the pretty advertisements in those magazines distract you from the text. Well, yeah. I'm kind of chuckling over here because I was the guy that had 12 contacts and thought it was just like so cool. You know, <laughs> I mean, you know, I, 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 uh, I'm just sort of, you know, I mean, I've had more than that. I, I think the most fun I've had, fun is kind of the word that keeps coming up. And um, Jim George got me involved in this Thursday night 30-minute sprint. It's in a sprint, I think, or something like that. And 
I felt like the water boy who wandered on the Super Bowl field accidentally. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's really fast and everyone's changing frequencies. You know, you stay one and you bump up to another one. But it was kind of cool. And, and I agree that uh, for me, I get, I mean, even though I'm just fairly new at all this, I get these emails occasionally from people. And, and uh, since I work globally with Motorola, I like the idea of reaching out to people all over the world and getting to know them a little bit better. So that's, that's been a kind of a fun thing for me, to be honest with you, even though I'm um, not in the big leagues on that. So I'll write an article and submit it, Dan. Yeah, you bet. All right. Yeah. That'd be great. Yeah. And, and Tom, I'm glad you enjoyed it. And, you know, when contesting ceases to be fun, then you know you're taking it too seriously. Yeah. Uh, this this is a hobby. It's not a way of life. I know we like to jokingly say contesting is a way of life, but it's a hobby. Right. And uh, it's you're really competing against yourself, and you're competing on an 11-year sunspot cycle. The nice thing for me is I've been able to go back now 11, 12 years and look at contest scores, and I can see where the cycle was at peak and where it was not based upon my scores and realize that uh, – I may think I can get 2,000 contacts this contest season on this band, on these bands, but I can't because propagation won't allow it. But in three or four years, I'll be able to. And I should be prepared for those years and get my skills built up so that I can do that. Uh, and that's the way life is, right? I mean, you started yeah. at Motorola. Now you lead teams. Now you advise a venture capitalist. Mm -hmm. But the, the day you finished college and grad school, you really weren't able to do that. So you've built skills up to allow you to do what you do now. And uh, that's, that's kind of what ham It's the same in ham radio. Yeah. Uh, I think what you two do with your podcast is really important. I've said the same to Neil Rapp. I've said the same to Eric Guth of QSO Today. Uh, and, and I've said the same to Steve Ford and uh, to Joel, uh, the Doctor is In podcast. Yeah, those are great. This, this is how we reach the ham radio community where they can hear and talk about ideas uh, and uh, they can learn that they're not so abnormal, that they're they're not the only ones feeling bad about being QSO number 12 <laughs> in the state QSO party, you know? Uh, it's okay. You don't have to have four digits on the exchange, uh, you know, and, and I'm glad you got into CW Sprint. That is a tough contest. It is. <laughs> uh, I uh, I have been in it and I've stayed out of it for a few years because I I just, you know, you have to build up the courage to get back in and have a fast pace. <laughs> That's so true. But we're actually, we're working uh, with the next one to try to increase participation. And we're thinking about doing it with team-based events and club-based events. Oh, nice. Yeah. So uh, talk with Jim George. Jim is now writing up the events, uh, writing up the uh, reports on it. Okay. And uh, give him some ideas that he can put into our leadership group that Ward Silver is a big part of. And, uh, you know, we need to do that. And state QSO parties are the same. And I took my uh, one of my all, three of my daughters have gotten their radio license. None of them are active. The youngest was the most active. She enjoyed ro being a rover with me, a mobile contester. So we did the Minnesota QSO party. I stuck her in the middle row of our suburban at the time 10 years ago. Put on, <laughs> had put a whip on the car. We got on 20 meters. And she called CQ and I. I taught her how to use the computer, and periodically she would say, oh, Dad, the computer's jammed, and I would pull over, and I would say, tell the pay people to stand by. So I'd get, her, get out of the back seat, fix the computer, and she'd get back on, and it really built her confidence. And she had a fun time, and I had a fun time, but there was something fun about getting out with it 10 below zero in some snow Ooh. in your car and doing this, you know? And uh, uh, the pictures I see from our own state QSO party in Minnesota, the guys who do this all the time, are amazing. We have one one ham, a K0PC, who ha has his car outfitted with a Bagali key. Now, he's a serious mobile wow. contest yeah. to do that. And so I actually featured him on the cover of NCJ last January because I thought it would inspire other people to maybe think about uh, doing the same. So 
Dan, maybe you can do that with your Vigali. <laughs> maybe, maybe. With your 7610 in the car with you. Yes. Well, okay. I think, I think we've, we've, we have touched on all the hot topics here and I am really, really excited. And I am very thankful, Scott, for you to take the time. I realize how busy you are and gentlemen, I'll just throw it back to both of you. Anything else you want to add in or uh, ask? I, I just I just want to say that I th- I think we've done a, actually a pretty good job of talking about contesting beyond the contest or yeah. contesters beyond the contest and I I think that's that if if anybody wants to take away something from this podcast it's it's that particular idea. Well, thank you for the opportunity to talk about it. I'm really glad that uh, Tom, you find NCJ helpful. Dan, I've enjoyed our, our QSOs on uh, 40 <laughs> CW. Uh, I uh, look forward to continuing to see you on Twitter as well. And uh, please uh, tweet with your new 7610 when you get it. Because uh, <laughs> you will. <laughs> because I, I think Amazon can deliver the radio with a drone to your QPH. In <laughs> Seriously, though, uh, you know, you're exactly right. Contesting should be fun. People should give it a try. It may not be what is their first or second interest in ham radio but they can do it if they choose to and there are lots of awards you can use contesting as a means to achieve uh, and that's perfectly okay and i i tell people all the time and i get a lot of comments on my radio station when i'm on the air and they say uh, i love your tower system and i say thank you i'm really happy with it but what's the the, the secrets about owning a big array is that it's a lot of work to maintain yeah. and more more expensive to realize to maintain when you put it up and uh, really, the average ham with, a, with an antenna, a single tower, and a Yagi, that's, that's the sweet spot in, in radio operations and contesting because uh, low maintenance issues it will work when you turn it on. You can turn the antenna wherever you want. Uh, and you don't need to have the antenna farm like uh, Tim Duffy or Craig Thompson to do really well in contesting and to have fun. The, the, the people who are at the top do it because they enjoy the competitive nature of it. And uh, the rest of us do it because we want to grow our skills and just enjoy the experience well scott thank you very much this has been a wonderful show hey thanks for inviting me congratulations on the podcast i look forward to more episodes 73 73 73 scott you've been listening to the no nonsense amateur radio podcast with dan kb6nu and tom kb5rf for links to internet resources mentioned on the show and other notes visit no nonsense amateur For more information about amateur radio in general, visit Dan's blog at kb6nu.com. 7-3.